Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil... Can I compare you to a summer's day? Uh, I'd rather you didn't, Mike. But how still. how do I love thee, Phil? Let me count the ways. Oh, please, just let it be one way. <laughs> please. That's about all the poetry I know, actually. So that's that's where we're going to end that. But oh, but today, thank, thank crikey. <laughs> today we are going to recite poetry and profess our love for films. Of course, as we do every single time one of these episodes drops. That's true. That is true. Phil, why don't you tell people what I'm talking about, for one, and what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Well, the films we're going to be going after the ending for this week are Deep Rising. Which is where the poetry comes from, obviously. Yeah, you know, but it's, it's a bit of sci-fi schlock with Treat Williams, who's always excellent, and also Steve Martin's Roxanne. Uh, I want you to know, I'm going to leave that in the episode, but I hate, I hate that song. With, with a passion. Yes, but as well as that, we're going to be doing our favourite films from a selection of years from the 1940s. We're filling in the blanks from uh, the years we've missed out so we can make sure when we hit episode 100, we've done all our favourite films from the past 100 years of cinema. Yes, indeed. But I want to go back to how much I hate the song Roxanne for a minute because I feel like we didn't go into that deeply enough. It's always good if you do really hate something to go back on it and dwell on it and pick at it like a scab until yes. it just gets bigger and bigger. So go on. How much do you hate it, Mike? And why do you hate it? Is it just because it's you don't like the song or is the reason for it? Uh, I really just hate the song. Let me. I'll do it Roxanne style. Roxanne, how do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. Hold on, hold on Mike. I'm just going to put on a red light. <laughs> the only time I ever liked that song was, well, tw- two times. One, there's a Saturday Night Live skit where uh, Molly Shannon's Mary Catherine Gallagher does like an audition to that song, and it's quite funny. <laughs> and uh, they did a cool thing with it in Moulin Rouge, uh, which I-, I enjoyed. But yes, the actual yes, yeah. police version of that song is every time I hear it come on the radio, which is often for some reason, it does make me want to drive an ice pick into my ears. Yeah, it just goes, just one of those repetitive ones. Yes. But I digress. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so that's what we're talking about in this episode. Uh, we'll try not to dwell on uh, the song. God, seriously, making you my ears bleed. You don't have to pull down a red light. Right, what is that? Why does he all of a sudden sound like he's from like the Bahamas or something? I don't get it. <laughs> what? Hey, it's Sting. He can do what he wants. I, so just Sound someone please explain that to me. It's just, uh, I think, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Yeah, good. Because I was going to say, whatever whatever excuse you're going to give me, I'm going to call BS on because there's no reason for it is the answer. I'm just going to search on Google, why does Sting <laughs> sing like that? Sing like a Jamaican? That comes up with the first thing. <laughs> See? Oh, my uh, yes. God. My whole what? day has just been made. There's a whole... Pe- why does Sting sing the song Roxanne with a strange accent? And the lines, you don't have to put on the red light. <laughs> this might be my favorite intro and ever. And the answer is? Ever. Okay. And the answer is no answer on that one. Uh-huh. See? Let's, let me just try another one. What, lots of ones saying, what accent does Sting actually use in some of his songs? 
Uh, I think oh, well, rock rock song does have a bit of that. Uh, it has like the reggae kind of uh, uh, kind of beat going on, doesn't it? So uh, maybe that's why. I believe it's actually from a small country known as Pretentia. Pretentia. <laughs> I, that makes him a pretension, I believe, something like that. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a reason why. Yeah, he sounds exactly. like that. But there's just loads exactly. of people saying, "What's with the weird accent? What's with exactly. the douchey accent? There you What's go. going on? Why? Why a why sting? Please, 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 <laughs> stop." I rest my case, sir. I rest my case. Yeah, you're not alone. You're All not right. alone. Good, good. All right, well, let's get into our actual movies, uh, changing subjects. Let's get into them. What are we doing first tonight, Phil? Well, I don't think we should do Roxanne. I think we should do Deep Rising first. So do you want to give us a rundown on the events of that film? I'll be happy to, but that is the last time you're going to sing that or we're going to have a serious You don't have to put on a red light. (laughs) I will reach through this microphone somehow and I will punch you in the face, sir. (laughs) Deep Rising, 1998, directed by Steven Summers, who just a year later would have a massive hit with The Mummy, even though Deep Rising was something of a bomb, uh, starring Treat Williams, Fomka Jansen, Kevin J. O'Connor, Jaiman Hansu, and Cliff Curtis. It's not a bad cast, actually, for a film like this. It's it's not, actually. And, and as you watch it, you kind of are like, oh, look at that. I know that guy. I recognize him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, boat Captain John Finnegan and his first mate, Joey, are hired by a group of mercenaries who are planning to rob a cruise ship that they've sabotaged with the help of an inside man. They get to the ship and find it abandoned, except for Trillian, a passenger who's also a bit of a thief herself. Soon after, the reason for the boat being empty is revealed. It's a gigantic sea monster that has killed almost everyone on board, with tentacles that wrap through the ship and infest it like hundreds of sea serpents. The creature kills off all the mercenaries and the few survivors, and Finnegan and Trillian manage to escape on a jet ski while blowing up the cruise ship and the creature behind them. They make their way to a nearby desert island where an injured Joey also washes up. As the film ends, we hear a monstrous roar coming from the jungle of the island. And that is a neat and tidy summation of Deep Rising. Not a plot-heavy film. That's a very good uh, summary of it. I like that. The way you did that. It's a, I, Thank you. I did enjoy this film, though. I, you know, I remember. I actually saw this film in theaters, and I remember. I think I did as well, actually. Yeah, it was. I at the time I was like, yeah, it was okay, whatever. I think I, I was hoping for maybe more than what I got because, yeah. again, as we know, during this time period, high expectations not always met. But uh, I actually watched it a few months ago. And I have to say, I absolutely loved it. In fact, I think when we did uh, 1998 not that long ago, it came in as like my number five or six film for the year. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really fun B-movie monster flick. It hits all the right notes. It checks off all the boxes, gives you everything you want from a, a monster flick. And I think it's really, really fun. So I'm, I'm glad we're revisiting it. Yeah, I think lots of people, well, listeners, go out and find a copy of it and watch it because many of you probably haven't seen it and it's well worth uh, an hour and a half of your time, and it's actually available on like the some of the budget companies have put out a Blu-ray of it, so it's a, you can get it for like six bucks. Oh, even better! I mean, it's it's super cheap. Yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, well, Phil, do you want to take us into your day after? Okay, Finnegan, Trillian, and Joey had spent the day running. Whatever had crashed through the trees always seemed to be just behind them, and they had run through the jungle in a madcap dash. They had finally stumbled upon a small cave, and seemed to have a few minutes to breathe. What is it? Said Trillian. Joey, I swear, said Finnegan, if you say it's a giant monkey, I'm going to punch you in the face as hard as I can. (laughs) Joey quickly stopped what he was about to say. Okay, Finnegan continued. I saw a glimpse of something, but it just looked like a mass of scaly flesh. I didn't get a clear view of it. Suddenly, from behind them, they hear a grinding noise. Turning, they see part of the cave wall open. From out of it steps a wizened old Indian man, 
dressed in a tattered sailor's uniform. Come quickly, he beckons, before they find us. Finnegan is about to argue with him until Trillian kicks him and they follow the old man further into the cave. Mm. That's, that's my day after. Intriguing. I'm, I'm very curious about this old man in this cave. Mm. Well, that's mine. What's going on with your day after? All right. Well, Joey collapses and Finnegan rips his shirt into strips and wraps his wounds. What about that noise? Trillian yells at him. Well, there's not much we can do about it at the moment, Finnegan replies, unless you want to go and see what's making it. <laughs> Trillian shakes her head and sits down on the beach. Joey's unconscious, and Finnegan turns to Trillian and says, Okay, the way I see it, we've got two options. We can load the three of us onto the jet ski and see how far we can get, but I'm guessing with the weight of three riders and just a half tank of gas, we may end up floating in the middle of the ocean. What's the other option? Trillian asks. We head into the jungle and see if we can find anything that will help us. Trillian thinks about it for a minute and then says, those options suck. And that's my day after. They certainly do, Trillian. They certainly do. <laughs> okay, well, I wonder what they're going to do with those options. Well, we'll, we'll see. Find out. We mm. shall see. All right, meanwhile, though, let's hear about this cave and this old man. Give us your immediate aftermath. Okay, then. Captain Nemo, said Finnegan. <laughs> You're telling me that you are the fictitious Captain Nemo that Jules Verne wrote about 100 years ago? The old man nodded. Yes, I am Nemo. And I've lived this long due to a strange energy that engulfed me many years ago on one of my many voyages. Joey and Trillian finished the meal that Nemo had made for them before asking him questions about the island and the creatures out there. Finnegan just stood with a dumb look on his face. Nobody else finds the fact that he is claiming to be Captain Nemo is strange. Trillian told him to shut up and listen. <laughs> Nemo explained that he had travelled to this island many years before to investigate a meteorite that had fallen there. The Nautilus had been attacked and badly damaged by some kind of sea creature. I hear that, said uh, Finnegan. <laughs> the surviving crew had made it to the island. Over the years, they'd been picked off one by one. Some had built rafts to sail away, but were killed by the monster in the sea. Those on the island were killed by animals that had been strangely mutated by the energy emanating from the meteorite. I've been alone for many years, but have never given up hope, said Nemo. I've finally repaired the Nautilus as best I can, but I need a power source. I believe that very meteor will work, and now that you are here, you can help. Of course we can, said Finnegan. That's my immediate aftermath. All right. I like it. Nice twist Thank having you. Captain Nemo show up. Yeah, I just thought, you know, throw him in. I do like a bit of Nemo. Absolutely. So you could say that Trillian and Finnegan were finding Nemo. <sighs> oh, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it all to hell. <laughs> but that's yet. It's a deep rising to finding Nemo. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then what's going on with the, uh, your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, after some discussion, they come up with a third option and decide that Finnegan will take the jet ski and do a loop around the island to see if there might be other options or any signs of civilization. Trillian stays behind with Joey, who keeps drifting in and out of consciousness. A few hours pass, and Trillian is starting to get worried. There are strange noises coming out of the jungle, and at one point she thinks she hears some kind of music or chanting. After a few more hours, Finnegan returns, looking even more beat up and bloodied than he was before. Well, he says, I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is, there's a boat on the other side of the island. They are here on an exploratory mission, and they've agreed to take us back to the States with them. What's the bad news? Trillian asks. Well, Finnegan replies, they've been tangling with some kind of monstrous creature of their own, and now it's been captured and sedated on the exact same boat we're going to be on. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, Trillian says. What is it? It appears to be a 40-foot gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> That's my immediate aftermath. So clearly, we both had the same thought about uh, King Kong being on Skull Island here. Yeah, it, it, it 
it both crossed our minds, but I had a feeling you, you might go with it. Well, so I, de- I decided not to. I, I can understand that. I, I had the same reservations. I think having just done King Kong a couple of weeks ago it was fresh on my mind. But I, I'll say this: King Kong, just a cameo. Oh, that's. But I like the fact that it's a good idea, though. Use it's the sh- it's the King Kong ship, which is going to help them get off the island. I like exactly. That. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, let's see how yours wraps up. Then give us uh, the long term of Deep Rising Two: Finding Nemo. Okay. Suddenly they meet a woman called Dory. No. <laughs> uh, it had been a close call. They were twisted, massive things. Finnegan had no idea what they had originally been. But using the weapons that Nemo had made, they had managed to fend off the beasts and retrieve the meteor. Okay, so he's Captain Nemo, said Finnegan, as he looked around the Nautilus. Nemo was taking them back to America, but it would take a couple of days, or maybe more. They were amazed by the technology of the Nautilus, and relieved when the creature that attacked the Argonautica did not appear. Now a day away from the island, they finally relaxed. Just as they were falling asleep, a loud klaxon went off and lights were flashing, an alarm. Now what? said Finnegan as they ran to the bridge. Nemo was already there looking at one of the many screens. He looked up as the others entered. Have you heard of Godzilla? said Nemo. (laughs) And that's my long term. I like it. Thank you. (laughs) That's fun. That's fun. You know, that's one of the nice things about Deep Rising. It's kind of a silly movie. It doesn't take itself too seriously. So I like that we can sort of go in silly directions. And, you oh, know. And, but you could throw all this stuff in. Right. And it would still fit it, into the whole, exactly. yeah, the whole film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very nicely done. Thank you very much. What's going on then with your long term, though, and, and the ship that's leaving Skull Island with Kong? All right. Well, the journey back to the U.S. had been surprisingly uneventful. Things hadn't turned out so well in New York with the giant monkey, but Finnegan, Joey, and Trillian were safely out of harm's way by that point. Joey spends a few weeks in the hospital but eventually recovers, while Trillian and Finnegan begin a casual romance. Nothing too serious, just drinks and romance every so often. Finally, the insurance check comes in for Finnegan's boat, which was quite a nightmare because it wasn't like he could exactly explain what happened on the cruise ship. (laughs) However, with some creative storytelling and corroboration by Trillian and Joey, he receives a fair compensation for his boat. As the last surviving passenger of the Argonautica, Trillian receives a hefty sum of money from the cruise line. Nice. One morning, as Finnegan is working on his new boat, Trillian shows up at the dock and says, Hey, I need a boat. Know anyone who's got one for hire? I think I might, Finnegan replies. Where are you headed? I want an honest-to-goodness beach vacation, Trillian replies. No monsters, no danger, no gorillas, no mercenaries, just sun, sand, and surf. Sounds good, Finnegan says. Any place in particular you have in mind? Have you heard of a beach town called Amity Island? Trillian replies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's the end. Oh, very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah, thanks. It was, you know, like you, kind of fun to throw other movies into the mix, you know. Oh, I could see see Finnegan going up against the giant shark. Right, right. That would be, yeah. I mean, it'd be kind of like a like a, a watered down Jaws, maybe, but still kind of like a, a fun new chapter in the Jaws saga, like Finn and Trillian versus, yeah, you know, a great white shark. Oh, excellent. Very good. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Phil. Well, it's time for us to see if you have any deep trivia. Well, they originally planned to have Harrison Ford play the role of Finnegan, but he turned it down. And because of that, the budget was subsequently downsized. Oh, yeah, um, I can see that because he, yeah. he would obviously allow you to increase a budget as a, yeah. as a big star. Yeah, so what could have been? But, but Treat Williams is so great in the in the role, yeah. though. Yeah. He's got kind of that like 
almost like winking at the audience kind of approach that I don't think Harrison Ford would have had. That's that's true, yeah. It yeah. would have been a much more serious monster film, I think, with Harrison Ford in it. Yeah, yeah. As much as I love Harrison Ford. But that's that's what could have been. Yeah. Uh, the film was on Roger Ebert's most hated list. <laughs> uh, Franco Janssen and Kevin J. O'Connor also starred in 1995's Lord of Illusions. And Claire Filoni was cast originally cast as Trillian, but she left after three days of shooting due to creative differences. Hmm. Interesting. I do like her. I'm just, I wonder what yeah, happened. Yeah, I do as well. She'd be good, but I don't know what those differences were, but it was something to do with creative stuff. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, Deep Rising. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, let's move on then to a truly fun and great romantic comedy from the 80s. Rock. No, don't do it. Oh. <laughs> All right, Phil, if you can exercise some restraint, why don't you take us through the events of Roxanne? I think my vocal cords have already got to exercise that <laughs> by uh, making me realize I can't do that every time the name is mentioned. Oh, it really? So. It only took you seven times yeah. to figure that out, yeah. huh? Yeah. Okay, uh, Roxanne, 1987, directed by Fred Shepsey, and based on the classic tale of Serrano de Bergerac. Uh, C.D. Bales, played by Steve Martin, is a fire chief of the small town of Nelson, Washington. He is clever, funny, smart, very good at his job, and he also has a very large nose, which he's very sensitive about. You don't want to mention it, because otherwise he could get violent, or even worse, he could get sarcastic. (laughs) He ends up falling for astronomy student Roxanne Kowalski, played by Daryl Hannah. She's renting a house from Dixie, played by Shelley Duvall, because she's trying to uh, track a comet, see if she can spot this comet, which she's been doing on a course. And it's uh, nice clear skies and the town of uh, Nelson. She ends up uh, meeting Bales and really likes him as a friend, but she fancies Chris, uh, a very nice but uh, dim fireman. Chris asks CD, his name's Charlie, so Chris asks Charlie to help him woo Roxanne by writing her letters and telling Chris what to do because Chris realizes he just hasn't got the the intellect. But Roxanne thinks he's clever because she saw him leafing through a book which was out of his intellectual range. Roxanne discovers that Charlie wrote the letters when uh, Dixie slides some of the letters under her door and with a note saying this is what's been going on. And Chris ends up skipping town with Sandy, a barmaid. Roxanne and Charlie obviously fight because of Charlie lying about everything, but stop when Charlie smells a fire. He leaves and his team put it out. They're heroes for the town. Charlie ends up sitting on the roof uh, one night of his house and Roxanne walks up and talks to Charlie as she realizes that it was everything from Charlie that she loved. And that's how it ends. That's Roxanne. Excellent. Nicely done. Thank you. But that's uh, that's what happened in the film. What happens in your day after? Well, Charlie and Roxanne begin a traditional courtship, going out on dates and becoming girlfriend and boyfriend. Roxanne accepts the position at the completely made up National Institute for Astronomical Studies. (laughs) And I say completely made up because I made it up because I didn't want to do any research. So, Uh, But that involves her having to travel fairly regularly. Every time she goes out of town, Charlie writes her a batch of letters to take with her, of which she only opens one a day. Roxanne thinks this is the most romantic gesture ever, and it doesn't take very long before both of them are deeply in love with each other. However, her work takes her out of town more and more often, and it begins to put a strain on their relationship. Before she leaves town again, Roxanne and Charlie have a huge blowout fight. She leaves town unsure of if she and Charlie are even a couple anymore, especially after she said some particularly mean things to him. None of them were true, of course, but she was angry and lashing out. A few nights later, Roxanne is sitting in her hotel room in front of a pile of letters when she receives a phone call. It's the firehouse. Charlie's been injured in a fire, and he's in a coma. And that is my day after. Oh, no. Mm. Serious stuff here. Serious stuff. Poor Charlie. 
that will definitely not have a happy ending of any kind. Oh, good God. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear your day after, meanwhile. Okay. Charlie and Roxanne spend the night talking. Charlie keeps apologizing, and every time he does, Roxanne tells him to shut up, then kisses him. So Charlie apologizes some more. <laughs> I, see, I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, then they talk about the stars, comets, life, the universe, and everything. They both feel that they've only been talking for a few minutes, but the sun comes up. They laugh, talk some more, and then head to the diner on Main Street for some breakfast. Roxanne takes Charlie's hand as they walk. That's my day after. All right. Short and sweet. I like it. Thank you. Uh, what's going on then with uh, with yours? What's happening in the coma? Well, Roxanne rushes back to Washington to be by Charlie's side. Charlie's fellow firemen explained that they were fighting a warehouse blaze when there was a huge explosion that knocked several of them out. While Charlie usually managed operations from the trucks, when his men's lives were in danger, he rushed in and dragged several of them to safety. But on his last trip in, a beam collapsed and trapped him, and it took a while to get him out. He never regained consciousness and had to be put into a medically induced coma. Roxanne isn't surprised that Charlie would rush into danger. He always puts other people before himself. She settles into the seat next to his hospital bed and pulls out the stack of letters she had in her hotel room. She begins to read them to him. They're not letters Charlie wrote. Instead, it's a series of letters she had started writing to him after their fight, telling him how she really feels about him and how deeply she loves him. Every day, Roxanne sits by Charlie's side and reads to him. And while she feels like he's hearing her, his condition also doesn't seem to be improving. After a few weeks, the doctors come to her and tell her that they don't think he's going to recover and she needs to start making preparations for pulling the plug on Charlie. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, bloody hell. Once again, I'd like to point out, definitely not going to be a happy ending here because I don't, I, don't do, oh. I don't do happy endings. You never do, no. <laughs> it's just I'm so unpredictable, so, but I never do happy endings. It's just always a downer. Yeah, it is with me. That's, that's definitely my trademark. In this whole endeavor. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know what's... Oh, poor, right. poor Charlie. That's, that's the end of it. Yeah. We might as, well, might as well bring the show to an end. Right. We may as well not even continue. Yeah. Uh, but if you can hold on for a little bit longer to see how it all ends, I think you'll be okay. I think it's going to end like this. It's going to end like this. <laughs> well, eventually, probably. But <laughs> Okay. I'm interested to see what happens. Great. Well, let's hear what's happening, meanwhile, in your immediate aftermath. Okay. With summer almost over, Roxanne realizes she'll have to move on. But when Dixie says that she can stay as long as she wants, Roxanne jumps at the chance. She can continue her studies in Nelson and go to the big city if she needs to. Once she says yes, Dixie calls out, CD! He walks from the other room, a big smile on his face. I told you she'd say yes, said Dixie. Roxanne laughs and then kisses CD. Why didn't you just ask me to stay, she asks. I get nervous, he replies. Get a room, shouts Dixie as the pair kiss once more. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right, I like it. Thank you. What's going on then with, well, obviously it must be the funeral now, so. Oh, totally. What's going on with your long term? Well, Roxanne is beyond grief. She's heartbroken at the thought of losing Charlie, but she's even more devastated to think that her last words to him were hurtful and untrue. She doesn't want him to go, thinking that she didn't love him. Roxanne tries to read Charlie another letter, but she's crying too hard to get the words out. She buries her head in his chest and sobs. And that's the end. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My God. <laughs> it's a very special episode of After the Ending. Um, anyway, a minute later, she hears a voice. Hey, did I miss something? She looks up to see that Charlie is awake. She hurriedly calls the doctors in, who are somewhat surprised at his seemingly miraculous recovery. It was you, Charlie says to Roxanne. I could hear you the whole time. You brought me back. Roxanne's tears turn to tears of happiness. In a little while, when things have settled down, Roxanne hands a new letter to Charlie. What's this, he asks. 
Just something new I wrote, she replies. Charlie opens the letter to see that it has just one sentence written on it. Will you marry me? And that's the end. Oh, very nice. Thanks. I like that. Oh, you, I, I thought he was going, oh, you tricked me. <laughs> I know, you didn't see it coming. Some people would say some people would say that them getting married is not a happy ending, but those people are, are bitter and angry, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. A little biting humor today on After the End. Wow, you know, if you're that listener out there, you didn't mean a person. That's right, that's right, exactly. <laughs> All right, meanwhile, though, let's hear what's going on in your long term. Let's see if you uh, have kept a happy ending here, or if you're going to go on a maybe slightly more typical Phil Dark turn. The two bodies of Charlie and Roxanne slowly <laughs> decomposed in the basement. No, no, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> okay, my long term. Charlie and Roxanne finished putting up the last of the Christmas decorations and Charlie checked that there was plenty of eggnog. Their son, his wife, and their grandkids were due any moment. Charlie and Roxanne kissed and danced along to the music in their hearts. The past 40 years had been full of joy and happiness. Charlie had ended up being town mayor. Roxanne was a well-respected astronomer working for NASA, and had overseen construction of an observatory in the mountains around the town. The doorbell rang. They gave each other a kiss and a hug before opening the door to let their family in. Oh. And that's my long term. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Um, side note, NASA yeah. would have made way more sense than the National Institute for Astro- Astronomical Studies. Yeah. Just saying, I maybe could have come up with that on well, my own. Well, NASA's but... not very well known. They haven't really done much. No. So I, I can understand why you didn't pick up on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I believe they've done something to do that big shiny thing that we see <laughs> in the sky at night. Right, right. Yeah. The, the, mu- the muon? I think it's <laughs> something, something like that. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's Roxanne. Oh boy! One last time, you had to get it in there, huh? Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, nicely done, Phil. Uh, that is going to wrap up our ending for Roxanne and Deep Rising. We didn't talk about if we liked Roxanne or not. Uh, no, we didn't. But I really like it. Uh, it's a lovely film. I do too. I, I, it was one of my favorites back in the '80s. I must have watched yeah, it on yeah. video, uh, you know, a dozen times, and it, I think it holds up really well. It's a fun, sweet film, and Steve Martin's terrific in it. it it's it's one of my favorite Steve Martin roles, hands down. Same here, because it's not like. Uh... It's not one of those wild and crazy guys. It's more right. like a more an understated kind of role, and he does it really well. Yeah. But it's I I watch this one over and over again. It's like you background, you know, videos was like a the new thing. You just you get a few films and you just keep watching yep. them every yep. day. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that that scene in the beginning where he goes through and insults the guy in all the different ways. That's oh just yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Amazing. I love it. Great. All right. Well, that's Roxanne. Phil, do you have any Roxanne trivia for us? And don't I, don't say no, it. I won't. I won't. Thank you. Uh, the band known, yeah, Sorry. the band known as the Police sang a song called Roxanne. <laughs> Had to get it <laughs> no, in there, the, didn't you? Yeah, in the scene from uh, when when Charlie goes to see the plastic surgeon and he's holding up lots of different pictures of different noses. One of them that he holds up to his face is actually Steve Martin's real nose. Oh, cool! Which I quite like. Uh, in a radio interview, Steve Martin said that his role in Roxanne was the first time he felt respected in a film role, as opposed for just being recognised as a one-time stand-up comedian. Yeah, hey, I can see so that. It's, it's nice to have that impact. Yeah, for three weeks, the picture was filmed in Nelson, which is a sleepy little town in a corner of British Columbia in Canada. Uh, but then it moved to a slightly larger town of Anmore, which was the largest city in Vancouver where they finished it off. And it was uh, it was number 10 on Gene Siskel's list of the best films of 1987. Very cool. And that's Roxanne. All right, nicely done. 
Okay, so those are our endings, which means that it's time for us to move on to our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes. This week, we are tackling a bunch of years. Uh, as Phil mentioned earlier, and we explained last week, we have to wrap up our years by episode 100. We have a few things we want to do before then. So we are killing off the rest of the 1940s that we haven't done yet. So today we're talking about 1942, 43, 44, 46, 47, and 49, which gives us some pretty good films. Certainly does. Some big films. Okay, do you want to kick things off then, Mike? Get things rolling? Yes, well, speaking of big films, my number 10 is anything but that. It is probably one of the smallest films on the list, but uh, I had to put it on there. It's a Disney animated movie. It is The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Oh, I like that, yeah. Yes, and this is here's the thing. This is really a nostalgia pick for me. When I was a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with the legend of sleepy hollow and the, and the, the haunted horseman the headless horseman yeah yeah uh, and this cartoon was one of the first things i remember watching where i absolutely loved it and i was absolutely terrified by it and it's not even that scary but that headless horseman creeped me out oh it's it's it's, it's a yeah that's it's the whole concept of it is scary yeah. yeah yeah and to this day i still have a real affinity for that whole legend of sleepy hollow the headless horseman and it all comes back to this cartoon um so it had to make my list even if it's not necessarily a masterpiece uh it was an indelible part of my childhood no it's a, it's a great cartoon I've, I've seen that many times it didn't make my list but no i can understand why it made yours and it's uh yeah it is that design and the whole thing when the headless horseman does appear and like the pumpkin just comes flying towards yes, the screen it's yes, really good yes yeah. and that's from 1949 i forgot to mention yeah okay well my number 10 is a film from 1944 and it's the scarlet claw it, this is one of the uh, the sherlock holmes films where basil rathbone played sherlock and nigel bruce was watson there's quite a few the years we're doing now there's quite a few of these sherlock holmes films with basil rathbone but this is one of my favorites i don't need to go into so many details but there's this case he's got to solve surprisingly <laughs> but i always remember watching this they, they always used to be on tv these when i was kids used to watch mum and dad i always remember the scarlet claw one because it had this glowing claw thing they found and there's uh, people who are mastered disguise and new identities and things in the in the woods and things on a small village with some uh, cool characters this what it always stuck with me but i, I do like most of the uh of rathbone's sherlock holmes films but this is my number 10 the scarlet claw good pick i i, I like them a lot too but I, at this point i can't remember which ones are which exactly so yeah i uh, yeah, didn't make yeah. my list but a good pick all right, well, my number nine is from 1942, and it is another Disney animated film, but it's the last one on my list. Uh, it is Bambi, which, I mean, it's Bambi. What more do I really have to say about it? I think one of the things about Bambi is it's the first time as a kid, one of the first movies you see where where yeah. the, the mom dies, and it's brutal, and it's sad, and it makes you cry, and you're like, whoa, what is this? This is supposed oh to be a cartoon, God, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. That's one of the worst of all the Disney parent deaths, you know, and they, they like to kill some parents, but... But it's still, it's a fun, you know, film overall. It's very cute. The animation is wonderful. It's classic Disney. It's not my favorite, favorite Disney film. That's why it's only at number nine. But it did have to make my list. No no big surprise there. No, it's a good show. It didn't make my list, but no, Bambi is a good film. I didn't I expect like it to. Yeah, no. Uh, my number nine is a film called Stray Dog from 1949. It's directed by Akira Kurosawa and stars Toshiro Mifune. And Mifune plays a rookie police detective who ends up having his gun stolen and he chases the pickpockets, but he doesn't track it down. But then he has to go undercover on a mission, and it turns out his gun's being used for certain things, and it's his journey undercover and his gun, his gun's journey intersect and things like this. But it's Akita Kurosawa, you know, Seven Samurai, that kind of stuff, and Toshiro Mifune, who's always cool. Uh, great film, great little po police procedural, almost like a buddy cop kind of thing going on with him and his, his partner. Uh, it's great. One only saw it about, well, I say only, but it must be about 10 years ago or so, but... Uh, 
really stuck with stuck with me some great scenes and it's good seeing because you often associate kurosawa with you know uh, feudal japan that kind of thing but seeing him you know in uh post-war tokyo it's it's really good you know hustle and bustle the crowds uh, intrigue it's almost like a bit of a noir as well kind of thing going on but a uh, very enjoyable film a good choice i have not seen that one so it did not make my list Oh, no problem. Uh, go on, and what's your next one? It is from 1942. It's The Magnificent Ambersons. A good pick, good pick. Thank you. It's uh, This is a, it was co-written and directed by Orson Welles uh, and also sort of co-directed by some other people because it is famously a film that uh, he kind of went crazy with a little bit and the studio took it away from him and it was released in a very butchered version. Yeah, was it the one he did after Citizen Kane? Was that the yes, yes it is. Mm-hmm. And he... Uh, there, there has been sort of a restoration done on it, you know, sort of one of those, we put it back together according to his notes. Yeah. uh, And that's the version that I've seen. And I really like this movie, which is weird because it's kind of a depressing film. It's about this family and basically everything that can go wrong to them over the course of several years does. It's, it's, it's not dissimilar in a way to, uh, it's a wonderful life and that you sort of follow these characters from, you know, youth to, you know, to, to being adults, except that without the happy ending kind of, um, so it's not usually my kind of film, but it's really, really interesting. It's got, it's got Joseph Cotton in it and, uh, Agnes Moorhead, but it's, um, it's a really cool film with some really good drama and and great characters and just an interesting story. And you keep kind of hoping for things to take a turn for the right and they just keep turning wrong, which sounds kind of grueling, but it somehow isn't. So uh, that's my number eight. Uh, an excellent choice. It's a good film. Didn't make my list, though. I mean, mainly because I've just not seen it in a very long time. Yeah, I can understand that. Okay, my number eight is uh, Miracle on 34th Street, which is from 1947. And um, we didn't after the ending for this one back in episode 71. Very good. What can I say? It's a classic Christmas comedy drama about the Father Christmas who goes working for a department store and claims he is the real Santa Claus. And that goes to court and it all gets the present. No, it does get the present. It's a lovely film <laughs> uh, and lots of fun and it's mine and eight. Excellent choice. Uh, spoiler alert, might not be the last time we hear about it on this list. Hmm, didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. My number seven is Yankee Doodle Dandy starring James Cagney. Uh, and he is playing the real life George M. Cohan, a very famous songwriter uh, and performer and this is one of those movies obviously everyone's heard of it it's very very famous it it's a musical with james cagney which is already sort of an odd combination and um i really didn't know what to expect from it i kind of watched it uh, it came out on blu-ray a couple years ago and i was like i should see this movie because it's really famous and i am a big james cagney fan so i was like well let me let me watch it. I, I mean, you know, I like him as a gangster. I haven't really seen him play too many other things. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I really like this film. I have to admit, it was it was very, very good. The music is good. It doesn't even bother me that it's a musical. The dance numbers are really impressive. I mean, what he could do, obviously, he did have a musical background in some some respects. Uh, he could, you know, he really did some great musical numbers. Um, but it's just a really good film. It, it's it's a great biopic. He's terrific in it. The, the supporting cast is great. The music is good. And I was surprised by how much I liked it. So it ended up at number seven. An excellent choice. It is a classic film. It's one of those ones that I couldn't remember whether I've seen it all the way through. I know I've seen bits of it. Right. Yeah, it is that I, kind of movie. I, I don't think I've sat and watched it in one sitting. It's always like I've come in like near the end or just watched a bit of the start or a bit of the middle, things like that. But uh, I'm glad I'm glad I made your list. I do recommend if you get the chance to watch it start to finish. It's really good. And I, it is from 1942, which I believe I forgot to mention. Brilliant. Okay. Now, I definitely have to watch, sit and watch that one because I do like James Cagney. Mm-hmm. Okay. My number seven is another Christmas film. This one is from 1947. It is, it is The Bishop's Wife, which stars Cary Grant, Loretta Young and David Niven, where Cary Grant plays an angel who comes down 
answering the, the prayers of David Niven's bishop and David Niven's wife and the angels sort of fall in love a bit, but obviously they can't, you know, do anything about it. But it's a, it's a lovely romantic comedy with that little bit of, you know, fantasy thrown in, uh, which I always quite like. And you've got Cary Grant, David Niven and Loretta Young. So there's like, that's a, that's a hell of a trio. Indeed it is. Good choice. Thank you very much. All right. My number six is from 1944, and it is Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat, uh, which is a movie about a group of people on a lifeboat. Yes. Which doesn't yes. necessarily sound all that thrilling, but... It's Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it stars Tallulah Bankhead, and basically what happens is they're, they're, it's wartime. They're sunk by a, an enemy ship, and the, this group of survivors on this lifeboat, they believe one of them is a German spy. And, of course, people start to turn against each other. And it's a very classic story. It's been told in many different forms of, you know, movies and TV shows and things like that. Uh, just this sort of group of people in a, trapped in one small place that start to turn on each other. But it's really good and it's really yeah. tense and it keeps you guessing all the way until the end. And I think it's utterly fantastic. Not one of Hitchcock's most famous films, but he really did a lot with, you know, a group of people in a boat for two hours. So, yeah, I mean, it's the te technical achievement of doing that, making it riveting and thrilling is a, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. It's yeah. like that in 12 Angry Men. It's like if you're, if you're a student of film, but you want to know how to have a load of people in a small space and make it, you know, exciting to watch, watch Lifeboat and 12 Angry Men, and then you, you're going to get lots of tips. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Lifeboat, though, it's a very good film. Didn't quite make my list. It almost did, but got pushed back down again because purely because, you know, all these years, there's so many good films in this mix. Oh, yeah, years. absolutely. I so some films fell off, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm glad it made your list. Uh, but my number six is uh, Great Expectations, the 1946 version directed by David Lean, based on the novel by Charles Dickens, obviously. This is the one that stars John Mills, uh, Gene Simmons, Mar Martita Hunt, Alec Guinness, and lots of others. But it's great cast, David Lean directing it, great story, just uh, incredible. And it's also the reason why I think it's I think it was the film, not the book, but it's the reason why my dad, who's also called Philip, his it's why his nickname is Pip oh, from wow. Great Expectations. Cool. So there we go. All right. And that's my number six. And did it say yeah, it was from nineteen forty six, if I didn't say that. All right, cool. All right, well, my number five is from 1944, and I'm surprised it's this low down on the list because it is a movie that I really love. I consider it one of my favorites. Um, but again, there's a few more that are just a bit above it. It is Double Indemnity, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson, and it is utterly fantastic. Kind of the prototypical film noir um, it's about an insurance guy who falls for your classic femme fatale and she convinces him to help bump off her husband. And then, of course, uh, things don't go as smoothly as they should. Yeah. But it's just wonderful. I mean, uh, Fred McMurray was mostly known for uh, like his comedic Flubber. roles. Yeah, Flubber. <laughs> that's right. Um, for his comedic roles. And uh, here he takes a dramatic turn. Edward G. Robinson is always fantastic, but he was always known for being a gangster. And here he plays like the insurance, uh, you know, man's boss. And, yeah, the most um, sympathetic character in the film. Yeah, actually, oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. And then, of course, Barbara Stanwyck is just amazing as as this, like I said, femme fatale. Oh, she's just oh, she's so dreadfully yeah, brilliant. At yeah, it. Absolutely, uh, it's a fantastic film, and it's one of those movies that I think everyone's heard of, but a lot of people haven't seen. And if you haven't, I really recommend tracking it down. It's a great like suspense kind of drama. It's not. You know, a lot of people are averse to older black and white films. I think they're boring. This is anything but. It's really exciting, uh, and it's just a, a really terrific film. And it, it's kind of a, a very famous movie for a reason because it's that good. Uh, an excellent choice. They might we may be hearing from it again. <laughs> All right, great. 
Okay, my number five is a film which we'll be hearing later on, mm-hmm. and it's Casablanca from 1942. I don't think I've heard of it. Well, it's this film, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's my, my number five, Casablanca, 1942, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman. We all know it, and I'm sure Mike will be talking about it a bit later on, so I'm just going to leave it there. It's my number five. I, I don't know what, what makes you say that. As, as, as I've said, because we've, we've done all these films, uh, we're doing all these separate years, uh, probably on different lists, it would have been an awful, it would have been a lot higher, but there's so many other good films as well. It's been a tough one to do, but that's why it's uh, my number five. I, I just want you to know, Phil, I forgive you yeah. for only having Casablanca at number five. Well, you just have, you haven't seen what my, my four, three, two, and one are, so you might be going, what the hell? Well, yes, well, exactly. <laughs> doesn't matter what they are because I already know none of them are better than Casablanca. <laughs> All right, anyway, moving on. My number four is... It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, and uh, I, we did an After the Ending for this. Uh, of course, it stars James Stewart and Donna Reed. This is a movie my family watches almost every Christmas now. It's become sort of a tradition for us. This is an elf, go figure. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's a wonderful film. Oh, that I didn't even mean to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic film, and it's always one of those movies where when we sit down to watch it, I'm always like, I'm not in the. I've seen this a million times. It's kind of depressing for some of the film. I don't. I'm not in the mood to watch it. I'm like, I, just last Christmas, I'm like, I'm gonna read while we watch It's a Wonderful Life because it's like my whole extended family watches it. Yeah. And about five minutes in, I'd put my book down. And I was just staring at the. TV I know screen. you can't. If it's on, you just got to sit there and you got to watch, you know, Jimmy Stewart going. Yes, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> it's it's so good. And here's the thing too: it's another one of those movies. Everybody, when it comes Christmas time, is like, "Oh, it's a Wonderful Life." And who wants to watch that? Because everyone thinks they've seen it, but but most people either haven't seen it in a long time or have only seen bits and pieces of it. When you sit down and watch it from start to finish, it's just magical. And man, that ending makes me cry like a baby every time. So, yeah. That's my number four from 1946. It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, yeah. And we went after the ending of that back in episode 36. All right. Uh, my number four is one you just mentioned. It is uh, Double Indemnity. Excellent. One of the classic film noirs. It really is. Yes. Uh, as Mike said, you've, you've really, you've got to, You've got to see this. If you've got have any interest in film, this is one of the ones you've got to watch because it's it's like the the perfect formula for, for film noir. It just does everything so well. And it's just amazing shots. Not not just the performances, but the whole choice of camera angles, you know, the whole setup of the shots, the lighting, the way it moves, the voiceover, the narration, things like that when it's when it's used and things like that. It's used sparingly, but it, it does oh, it's just just brilliant film. Absolutely. And it's directed by Billy Wilder. Oh, I forgot to mention. Yes, it is. I'm glad we're on the same page with that one. Yeah. All right. Well, my number three has already appeared on your list, and it is my second in a row Christmas movie. It's 1947's Miracle on 34th Street. Mm -hmm. Not a big surprise. Uh, As I've mentioned so many times to people, that this is not only probably my favorite Christmas movie of all time, but one of my favorite movies of all time. I can watch this movie any time of year, and I think it holds up. It is magical. It is delightful. It's charming. It's fun. And and everybody in it is fantastic. And I just, I really love it. So Miracle on 34th Street. What else do I have to say? There's a reason they're still playing it on TV every year, you know, some 60 years later. Oh, an excellent choice. And you would make your list at some point. Yep, definitely. Uh, my, my number three is uh, The Third Man uh, from 1949. It's uh, another film noir directed by Carol Reed. Stars Joseph Cotton and Trevor Howard and Orson Welles. Although you'd think, you know, if you haven't seen the film, you'd be expecting Orson Welles to be like a major player in the film. But he's, he's not in it that long. He's only in it for tiny parts of the film. But good God, he's in it. Just, you know, the, the classic scene where you see his face come out the door, the, the shadow doorway, and then he does the speech about cuckoo clocks on the uh, on the big wheel, and the, the chase through the sewers and things like that. It's just, oh, it's amazing. But it's all, 
It's Joseph Cotton. His character goes to Vienna to track down his his old friend Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles, and he gets involved and he he, he realizes that Harry Lyme's been involved in crimes and things. He tries tracking him down, and it's just loads of characters, a bit of a mystery, you know, a bit of you know you're not sure who to trust, things like that. But it's just it's just elegantly shot, amazing scenes, and as I say it's got a, it's got the brilliant soundtrack, classic soundtrack. Which if you haven't seen the film, you've probably heard it. Uh, you know, it's the I believe it goes like this: Roxanne. That's the one, yeah. Dun 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 dun, Roxanne. Yeah. You don't have to put yeah, uh, but it's uh, yeah. It's I also went to Vienna many years ago with some friends, and I went to see some of the places where it was filmed, including the Big Wheel. Uh, but uh, it's. It's another one, like you mentioned, with uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Lots of people are going, oh, really? oh we're going to watch this again. And then you realise you haven't actually seen it all or you haven't seen it all for a long time. But when you sit and watch the whole film and you see how it just develops and this this like bit of a detective story and the people trusting each other and then breaking that trust and, and so on, it's just it's just... It's a fabulous film. Good pick. I did not include it on my list because it's one of those movies that I can't remember if I've seen the whole thing or just parts yeah, of it. I, yeah, I, exactly. There'll be lots of people listening to this who are probably in the same boat. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I just couldn't come up with it, so I didn't make my list. But I know it's a, I know it's a good and a well-loved film. Yeah, but it's uh, that's my number three, The Third Man. Hey, how about that? Hey, look at that. <laughs> Serendipity. Uh, so we're now into our top two. Our top two. Well, my number two uh, marks the second appearance by one James Cagney on my list, and it is 1949's White Heat. Oh, classic, yeah. Top of the world, ma. <laughs> uh, and this is the movie that made me fall in love with James Cagney. It's actually a little later in his career. It's not the quite the the young, skinny, svelte one, you know, Jimmy Cagney from, you know, The Public Enemy and all that stuff. But uh, it yeah. sort of he plays like a slightly aging gangster um, on a tear, and it, it's just fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, this is probably my favorite gangster movie of all time. And the ending is amazing. James Cagney is just fantastic in it. And it's I don't even know what it is about it that makes it so good. It's hard for me to put it into words like there's nothing I can point to where I can say you have to watch this movie because of X, Y and Z. Uh, it's just really great. From the first scene to the last, it's intense and it's exciting and it's action packed. And it's if you want to see like the very definition of a great gangster movie from classic Hollywood, this is it. This is the one I would point you to. So that's my number two, White Heat. An excellent choice. It almost made my list, but again, as you said, lots of films yep. got pushed down. Yep. Uh, and I've also not seen it for a long, long time. Oh uh, yeah. It's another. It's well, I need to have a good session of watching. You know the old. Yeah. The old classic movies from this this time period because they're doing this looking through these lists as well. Lots and lots of films which I've heard of, yep. uh, which I've not seen, which I really need to watch. Right, I'm right there with you. But uh, a, a, a good choice, I'm glad it made yours. My number two is uh, from 1946, and it is A Matter of Life and Death, uh, written, produced, and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, Powell and Pressburger, and it's set in England during the Second World War. And we've got uh, David Niven, uh, Kim Hunter, and it's all David Niven. He's he's on a bomber, and it's been blasted by uh, during the war, and he's, he's, cra- he's going to crash. And he can't, he has his parachute's ruined, but he's talking to this woman, you know, the air traffic control in the army, and they talk, and in those brief moments they fall in love. If you haven't seen this film, but you've seen Captain America, the first Avenger, the bit at the end when it caps torn to Peggy is basically a homage to this. That's the opening scene from Matter of Life and Death. But David Niven dies, he ends up in heaven, uh, but he wasn't meant to be. There was a mix-up, and then it's like this court courtroom thing going up in heaven to see whether he can return to Earth, and it's all like magical, and there's 
because uh, this this French guy comes down from heaven to earth to see what's going on, and he, you've got to. It's just this freeze frame where up, up in heaven. It's just amazing where it's all done. Up in heaven, it's all black and white, but on earth, it's this beautiful, you know, uh, technicolor. Ah, just so many magical moments. Time stops by, you know, when the guy from heaven's there, he can stop time. And he's talking to David Niven about the reasons why he should come back to Earth, why he deserves to live. Uh, and, you know, deals with big things. Got the classic scene with the, the big staircase going up to heaven, which has been uh, in, like, music videos and other films. It's, if you haven't seen this film and you watch it, you'll realise this has inspired lots of lots of other things which, which you won't have even realised. But it's an absolutely brilliant film. And I think it's just had a 4K restoration as well, which I've not yet had a chance to see. But uh, that's my number two. An excellent pick. I have to admit, I have never seen this film, but after hearing you talk about it, I really want to because I love that kind of stuff. That really sounds right up my alley. It's amazing. Uh, there'll be lots of. It's one of those films which often you see, you see the name mentioned, you go, "Oh, yeah, that's that's not." Uh, but I haven't seen that one. But no, this it's uh, it's it's a beautiful, brilliant, and quite funny film as well in places, but deals with big issues in an amazing way. It's just. They don't make films like that anymore. Very cool. All right. But go on, Emma, what's your number one? I wonder what it could be. <laughs> well, my number one will come as a surprise to absolutely nobody who's been listening to this show for more than, uh, I don't know, one episode or two, maybe. It's cat people. <laughs> it is not cat people. Uh, but you got a couple of the first letters correct. <laughs> it is 1942's Casablanca, directed by Michael Curtiz, starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. And of course, it is not only my number one of the 1940s, it is my number one film of all time. It's my favorite movie. So this isn't a big surprise to anyone. I've talked about it many times before. Um, if I have to pick my favorite movie of all time, Casablanca always gets the nod. It is a perfect film. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, one of my favorites. It's a movie that I always tell people it's not the movie that you think it is. It's a hard movie to get people to watch because everyone assumes yeah, yeah. it's this dusty old romance and it's going to be dry and boring and two people just being angsty and kissing. And that is so far from the truth. It has suspense and it has action and it has so much humor in it. And Humphrey Bogart is a star unlike anyone else. There's never been anybody like him. Yeah. Ingrid Bergman literally is like she's glowing in the dark on screen. She's so transcendent. It's just a film that to me is literally perfect from the very first cell to the very last. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. dialogue. And, and I've said it before. So many classic lines that are part of everyday modern lingo and pop culture lexicon that people don't even know came from this film. There's easily five or six lines from this film that you've probably said in your life and don't even realize it came from Casablanca. So. It's a movie I love. It's near and dear to my heart. I recommend everybody, please watch it if you haven't, and hopefully you'll love it as much as I do. And that's my number one. An excellent choice. I knew it'd be number one. But it always amazes me that when they were making it, they didn't expect anything from it. It was just like changing the script as it went on, and it was just another one of the many films which the Hollywood studio at that time were just churning out as they did. Yeah, it was. It, it had a, it had some troubles. Like it was a kind of a troubled set, and like it, it, yeah. it wasn't a smooth production. But somehow it turned out to be, in my opinion, the greatest film ever. Yeah, well, it just came together. It was like won Oscars and things like that. But I think when they were filming it as well, lots of the people involved thought it was going to be a big pile of Huey and... Uh, right. Obviously not. Obviously not. But an excellent choice. All right. Well, let's see then, Phil. I'm very curious to see what makes your number one. So go ahead and hit me with it. Well, you've mentioned it. It's a, it's a wonderful life. Ah, there you go. Great, great choice. Six. Yeah, it's uh, Frank Capra's... He made... Many brilliant films, but this is just just the one. It just, as you were saying, when you sit and watch it all in one sitting, it's just an incredible achievement. It's even without the you know the magical elements, it's just a brilliant 
it just tells the story of one man's life and his frustrations and dreams and hopes and his crazy uncle loses that damn money you know such yeah. a, <laughs> every time just going this time don't no right, did you, did, right. yeah you want to change the events of the film and you can't yeah and it's just uh yeah and, oh, so many so many brilliant moments and just the way it's done though it just moves through time and it's 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 angels watching the events of his life of george bailey's life from heaven and then it's just oh amazing and i love it it's 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 how it's probably gives that example of small town america that many people have in their heads which probably didn't exist or if it did it only existed for a tiny period of time i think yes and no because i think that it does paint a picture of small town america but i think it shows the real side of it is that that's that's true yeah because does show a lot of the darkness and the uh, yeah right, right that george couldn't escape from his small town life even though he wanted to you know i think yeah, the, yeah. the idyllic version is everyone's happy on main street eating ice cream and saying hi to their neighbors in the sunshine and this movie was more hey i'm trying to get out of here and i keep getting pulled back in because bad things keep happening and i think that's what i like about it so much is that it's it's true to real life, you know. You have it's, old man Potter as well, just, you know, ruining everything because he wants more money. Right, right. That's realistic, like that. you know. Yeah. People's lives yeah. don't yeah. always turn out the way they want them to, and that's realistic too, you know. So I think that's part of what makes the film so great. An excellent point. And it's, uh, you don't often see many films where, you know, the main cast fall into a swimming pool during the school dance. <laughs> that is and true. I, I, I think that's good, yeah. <laughs> but it's still, so, that's a great scene. Yeah, so many brilliant moments. It's You could watch it, you don't have to watch it at Christmas, but it's just is part of Christmas. Absolutely. And it's just, it's fascinating and brilliant and beautiful. It is. And everybody involved was amazing. Absolutely. But I just remind you again, we went after the ending for that back in episode 36. So if you want to know what happened to George and Clarence after the events, Episode 36 is the one for you. There you go. All right. Well, that wraps up our best of the 1940s, or at least select years from the 1940s. And that's going to start to wrap up our episode. But before we go, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? Okay. Well, because of the time of year it is, summer holidays and all that coming up, we're going to have a couple of mini episodes uh, while Mike's away and things like that, just to fill fill the gap, because we're always going to bring you new content. So it's going to be one of the short episodes. We're going to be talking about top five something or others. Yep. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, we've got a couple of fun kind of summer-themed mini episodes. So I think those will be really enjoyable. And then, Phil, once we get back from that break, uh, tell people what's going to be our, our next new After the Endings. Okay, well, if you like monkeys and you like Matthew Broderick, you're in for a treat. Because we're going to be doing After the Endings of 1987's Project X. Uh, not to be confused with the... The film of the same name from 2012, which was the thing about the house party. But this Project X is Matthew Broderick uh, and some monkeys are being trained for space flight and stuff like that. Anyway, it's a great film. Many of you probably haven't seen it. <laughs> and we'll also be going after the ending of Superbad. Yeah, Superbad. Yeah, Judd Apatow, kids going to parties, getting drunk, trying to have sex. That's the films we're going to be doing after the ending for on the next full episode. And um, what years are we going to be doing, Mike? All right, so that's another one of our, that's going to be kind of our, our final clearinghouse uh, to wrap up our, our first run through of the years uh, before we start to get into our movies we missed. And this will be 1950, 1952, 54, 56, 57, and 59. So it'll be just like this episode. We'll have, you know, half the decade of the 50s. So it's going to include a lot of big films, a lot of great films. Uh, so it's going to be another jam-packed episode. You don't want to miss it. It should be lots of fun. So uh, if you're going away on holiday as well over the next couple of weeks, have a good time and, you know, stay safe. Yeah, and don't forget to download a bunch of episodes of After the Ending so you can binge listen to them. Yeah, go back. We've got loads. I mean, this is episode... 92. This is Yeah, I mean, this is episode 92. So if you're just joining us, you've got, you've got 
so many delights to listen to. That's right. Just watch out for the bus driver and the serial killers. Yeah, and be and go easy on us if you go back and listen to those first eight episodes. They're a little rough. I was a bit nervous. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do us for this week. Uh, So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. And Phil, I'm excited because today we're going after the ending of one of our, for the first time, we're going after the ending of a song, Roxanne, which, you know, we've we've never done that before. Yeah. We're going to see how that plays out. uh, It's, you know. That went nowhere fast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've booked uh, some tickets. I'm gonna. I'm coming over to the New York Comic Con, but I'm gonna go on. A, I booked some tickets. I'm gonna come over on a cruise this time. Mm-hmm. So I've got a good deal on a thing called the uh, Argonautica. Yeah, I see, but no one's gonna know what that is. I think off the top uh, to start yeah. with. Okay. All right. So if this is gonna be an outtake, this is what we go through every episode, <laughs> folks. I don't like that song. It's, I do like some police songs, but it's that was one of my. my but unfavorites. Unfavorites? Yeah, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll figure something out as we go. Maybe, maybe I won't. Who knows? History is not on my side. <laughs> <laughs> but they were now on a fully functioning Nautilus. Finnegan would have nightmares about the monsters in the jungle. They were twisted, massive things, and he had no idea what animals that they originally had been. Yeah, that was a big mess of a sentence. <laughs> Mike's away from the microphone. Mike's away from the mic. Mike's away from the microphone. Mike's away from the mic. Is he coming back? Mike's away from the microphone. Mike's away from the mic. Mike's away from the microphone. Mike's away from the mic. Is he coming back? Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. <laughs>